All right, y'all, October 20th, 2019. Time for another Q&A show. Well, I was born down south on the chicken ranch, close to Nashville, Tennessee. Where nothing there but a sky full of air, Kim's having chicken. And then one day it said, hey, 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 as I dropped a head of LSD. I got real kind, blew my mind, said my chicken's free. Said my chicken's free, yes, I set them free. Got real kind, blew my mind, said my chicken's free. All right, you guys. I'm Scott Horton. This is the Q&A show. I can't stand to do a podcast where I just sit here and talk to myself for an hour. So I got Phil Gibson on the line. So one of our assistant editors at the Libertarian Institute. And uh, he's going to sit there and listen while I say what I got to say. And that way it just don't seem so weird. Hey, Phil, how are you doing? Good, man. Good song. Good song. How are you, how are you doing? Yeah, man. Uh, I'm doing okay. Uh, let's talk about some things that are going on here. What you got on the list? Yeah, man. Well, I want to hear your two fiat cents of what you got to think about the whole Syria thing. And maybe uh, Clinton, uh, Badmouth, and Tulsi and all of that, maybe. Okay, so yeah, to start with the Syria thing, you know, you can't do better than to read uh, Danny Sertian's last couple of articles there at antiwar.com. Um, I guess the most recent one is the reprint of his Truth Dig. But we got a deal where we run each other's stuff there. You know what he writes for each site there. Um, and, you know, essentially the deal is for all the critics, uh, you should concede, you know, the all of the critics' best points when they have some. And that is that, of course, Donald Trump really did screw this up. He could have worked for the last year. It wouldn't have taken even that. He could have just encouraged the Kurds to make a deal with the Assad government and encouraged the Turks to stay out and negotiated a peaceful resolution to this thing that would take the shape of almost entirely what we have now anyway in the shape of the deal that ended up being brokered by the Russians after the Americans withdrew and instead you know we have what a couple of weeks of fighting and a few hundred people killed at least and including some war crimes that have taken place at the hands of the free Syrian army mythical moderates um, who never were so moderate in the first place. No real surprise there. Uh, but for people to say that somehow this is the proof that, see, you can never leave anywhere, and you have to stay everywhere you ever are, because if you leave, whoever your local clients are, your local quizlings will now be held to account by people nearby for the amount of, you know, uh, distorted amount of power that the Americans have given them uh, because of the consequences for those people. Well, that's just completely ridiculous and cynical. And the people who are making that argument are either being cynical or they're just fools parroting that kind of thing. And of course that includes the president himself who said, look, we're not leaving Syria. We're just pulling our troops out of Northeast Syria. And of course we learn the lesson from Barack Obama's withdrawal from Iraq, that that's what caused the rise of ISIS. And, you know, it really makes me mad when Donald Trump says that, madder than when any other liar or cynical warmonger or whatever curse word goes here says it. And that's because he used to be good on this. 
he used to end the campaign. Remember, he trolled the hell out of the Democrats. He said Obama and Hillary Clinton, they're the founders of ISIS. And the Democrats and the media went crazy. But then he explained. Yeah, see, what they did was they backed the jihadists in Libya, and especially they backed the jihadists in Syria in the war against Assad there for no good reason. And that ended up leading to the rise of the Islamic State, where then Obama had pulled the troops out of Iraq. And so there were no American troops left to stop the Islamic State from invading western Iraq from eastern Syria. So that was perfect, right? The problem is now they dropped the whole first two parts of that, and now it's just, well, we pulled troops out of Iraq, and so then ISIS appeared. And this is not just Trump, but this is all of them. This is the consensus in D.C. And um, so you see the way they always just act out the script of what they think happened the last time and this kind of thing. When Trump announced the escalation in Afghanistan back in 2017, he said, hey, we saw what happened when Obama pulled the troops out of Iraq. That was the war he wanted to end the most. So, um, you know, anyway, uh, the reality is that America has to leave northeastern Syria and southeastern Syria and western Iraq and all of these places, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, at some point, we have to stop this. Everybody knows that. They're from there. That's why we call it there. It's there. Here is here. This is the new world. That's the Middle East. How could it possibly be that America is supposed to be, according to our point of view as Americans, is supposed to be the dominant power in somebody else's part of the world? That's supposed to last for how long? From now on? Uh... It's crazy. At some point, we're leaving, and at some point, the groups we've been propping up are going to pay, and that's the way it's been. Um, And so, you know, Afghanistan is a perfect example of that, where the national government that Bush and Obama have created there has no capability of standing on its own. They spend half of their gross domestic product on the cost of their government, or more. And more than half of that is just the cost of the army that does nothing but lose anyway. So, that government's, you know, their goose is cooked. Now, and you know exactly what's going to happen. If Trump or the next president or the next president or the next president tries to get out of Afghanistan, they're all going to say, oh no, there will be consequences for the people we propped up in power there. As though that's a good enough reason to stay. When it is the case, we are going to have, within the next year, almost assuredly, we will have American GIs die in Afghanistan who were not even born yet when the September 11th attack took place. And when we, or even when the last Al Qaeda guys fled Afghanistan back then, and instead we're fighting against a local Pashtun insurgency, we lost a war against the local Pashtun insurgency uh, when we switched sides to the Russians' side in that war. And so at some point, we got to learn the same lesson as them. You can keep spending, you know, however much blood and treasure on this thing and. Eventually, when you leave, you will have essentially achieved nothing and gotten nowhere. Now, the only question is whether our empire is going to completely fall apart before we finally get the message through our thick skulls the way it took in the Soviet Union. And sorry to talk so collectivist. English is a very commie language, but you know what I mean. Not us libertarians, the people who run this thing over here. Um, but yeah, and then, so to the reality of what's happening on the ground. The... um. 
the Turks essentially are carving out this border safe zone, a small part of it, but not much. Uh, you know, I interviewed Patrick Coburn yesterday. It'll post soon here. And he talked about how they're not getting very far. They're already kind of bogged down. It's rough terrain. They've got plenty of enemies. And then the Syrian Arab army and even the Russian troops themselves have swooped in. And you got Russian troops patrolling the streets of Manbij, which means that Turkey ain't going to Manbij. Um, or either that or World War Three, but no, it's not. It means peace. It means in the short term. It doesn't mean utopia. It doesn't mean no one's killed here. It means in the short term, things are going to work out. The border is not really going to change. Erdogan would like to change the shape of the border a little bit, but he's not really going to get away with that. And, you know, there's a question of whether they're going to try to, as they claim they're going to do, take all the Syrian refugees, millions of them living in Turkey now, and transfer them all into Syrian Kurdistan to fill this border region, when the reality is almost all of them will end up going back home anyway. But if any of them try to stay, the local Kurds are going to fight. local Syrian Arab army probably is not going to go along with that, putting a bunch of Arabs in Kurdish territory. At the same time, the YPG is going to have to withdraw from the territory that they control, like in Raqqa and further outside of their traditional domain there. But, you know, they're already joining the army. That was what Patrick Coburn said on the show. The Kurds have now joined the Syrian Arab army. That was part of the condition, which is a huge concession on both of their parts, right? Talk about spit in your hand and shake. Wow. The YPG, SDF, they're integrating into the Syrian Arab army, and the Syrian Arab army is welcoming them in to some degree. And so you see how, for all the whining and complaining... America's obsolete in this situation, which leaves the Hawks complaining that, oh no, now Russia is gaining influence there. So what? What does that mean? Russia's had a naval base there since like the Cold War began or something like that. Um, Since, you know, the Soviet Union, uh, certainly decades. And the only reason the Russians intervened in 2015 was because Obama's support for the jihadists had gone too far. And threatened to truly overthrow the government in Damascus. And the Russians finally intervened after four and a half years of war. Four and a half years of proxy, mercenary, jihadist, suicide bomber war there. So, I don't know. Like, if you had to quantify Russia's influence in Syria on some kind of chart, their moving troops into Mambij is a tenth of a percent compared to their overall presence there. It's essentially meaningless. It's just a talking point on this side. And then, you know, it also goes to show how hollow all the Hawks' argument has been this whole time. That, you know, they talk, our allies, the Kurds, what about our allies? They're being mercilessly attacked by the Turks and the Russians. Well, but the Turks are our allies. The Turks are our NATO treaty legal allies. The Kurds were, you know, useful uh, you know, shock troops, essentially, virtually stateless, um, you know, kind of militiamen fighting against the Islamic State that Obama wished he hadn't built up so big on a temporary basis. But they talk about Turkey like it's an enemy state of ours rather than our treaty ally. And they talk about all oh, these murderous butcher war criminals in these militias working for Turkey. Well, who are they? It's the Free Syrian Army. We have an article right now on antiwar.com by Max Blumenthal. 
18 of 21. He went and did the counting on the specifics. 18 of the 21 militias being used by Turkey to commit their war crimes against the Kurds right now, including they pulled this politician, this woman who's not a fighter at all. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know her name, but one of their you know highest political leaders pulled her out of a car and, and butchered her, tortured her, and murdered her on the side of the road, I guess, uh, a few days ago. These are the moderates. These are the people that we were told from 2011 through now are the plucky, heroic, moderate rebels simply trying to create a democracy and protect the people of Syria from the genocidal butcher Bashar al-Assad. That Assad had decided that he was going to kill every last Syrian civilian because of how much he likes killing Syrian civilians. And then these plucky, moderate militias rose up to defend the Syrian population from him no, in fact, uh, see, told you, they're just CIA and Turkish proxy terrorist murderer butchers. The guys who committed the war crime against this Kurdish politician are the same guys who've been committing war crimes in this American, Saudi, Turkey, Israel, Qatari, whatever. Back to, I know some of those should have had eyes on the end of them. American, Turkish, Saudi, Israeli, Qatari plot to funnel billions, tens of billions of dollars uh, in cash and weapons, trucks and supplies and everything for this war this whole time. And uh, isn't it great the way that they just, they truncate the antecedents, as Robert Higgs says. They never tell you what just happened. Even all this talk about Joe Biden's son. Getting this job in Ukraine, it's now $83,000. You see that, Reuters? Not $50,000, $83,000 a month. The vice president, uh, the vice president at the time, his son was making to sit on this uh, the board of this Ukrainian gas company, and they cover that. But one-tenth of one percent of the time, do you see... By the way, this took place right after America overthrew the democratically elected government there in a coup d'etat, in an Iran 1953-style blowback coming down the line type of a coup d'etat. They called it the Maiden Revolution. It was the NED and the CIA and a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis, by the way, who provided the muscle to get it done in the end. And this happened in February of 2014. Just before all of this kicked in with Joe Biden taking the lead on Ukraine policy and his son taking this zillion dollar a year job, which, by the way, his ex-wife says he blew all on coke and whores. $83,000 a month. That It's been totally disproven that there's any corruption there, you conspiracy crank, by the way. <laughs> says every unanimous media organ in America. Okay, guys, as long as you just keep insisting that. Anyway, um, truncating the antecedents. They don't tell you. It was Obama who betrayed the Kurds by building up the Islamic State at their expense long before Donald Trump turned his back on them and left them to the tender mercies of the Turks. They don't tell you, you know, the background of the history of this, who's who, or how any of it got this way. And yet, where are we at? We're right where we were. Well, we're almost, in the short term again, we'll be right at where we were before the war. Where the Turks, you know, have 
some level of autonomy as, you know, a Kurdish region inside Syria, but they have a relationship with the, and are essentially, I guess, frankly, are at the, in the end, dominated by Damascus. That the Syrian Arab army and its police forces and so forth have the monopoly on force in Syria. It's a nation state. That's what that means. And that does suck for the Kurds. Uh, You know, many Kurds would like to have independence. God bless them or whatever you're supposed to say there. But that's not for America to secure for them. I'm trying to arrange an interview with John Schwartz who wrote this great article about how America screwed the Kurds over eight times. Different Kurds in different places and times. And as he says in there, because they're stateless, that makes them very useful proxies for America to cynically use against various countries in the region and then abandon like we've done against Iran with PJAC and against, you know, with uh, Talibani and Barzani and their groups in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan with the uh, YPG here in uh, Syria. And of course, you know, nobody talks about Bill Clinton in the 1990s. The only reason I know about this is because of Noam Chomsky. I mean, I saw no coverage of this whatsoever. I mean, if you look for it, you can find it. But there was absolutely no public discussion whatsoever of the fact that America was arming and financing and supplying Turkey in a massive crackdown against the Kurdish PKK in the 1990s, where I don't know, at least tens of thousands were killed there in suppressing that. Nobody cared about that. Betraying the Kurds. Come on. Like, this is something unique to Donald Trump. That's what we do. Remember, Bush Sr. told them to rise up against Saddam Hussein and then turn his back on them and let them all get mowed down. Let the MEK drive over them in Saddam Hussein's tanks. Um, uh, Nixon and Kissinger backed them. Uh, it worked with Iran to back them against Saddam and his partners in Iraq. I forgot the, the guy above his name at the, at the moment, but uh, in the early 70s. And, then, and the Kurds didn't want to do it because... They knew the Americans would leave them high and dry, and so the Americans got the Iranians to promise to help and that they would have their back, but then the Iranians left them high and dry too. America and Iran abandoned them at the same time, and then Saddam crushed them. And of course, Ronald Reagan was selling weapons to Saddam and arming him and covering for him in the UN and all the rest in the 1980s when, I think it was in 1984, when he committed the Anfal campaign, which killed approximately 100,000 Kurds. And then... Um, in uh, 1988, he did the Halabja massacre against some Kurds who had allied with Iran against Iraq. And this is when Ronald Reagan was backing Iran too, but mostly was backing Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war, which America and Saddam had started. Jimmy Carter told Saddam, go ahead and do it. I'll back you up in 1980. So, um, oh yeah, no, let me stop and cry some crocodile tears on behalf of Washington, D.C.'s emotions about the abandonment of these poor Kurds. When, of course, as anyone who's really critical and looking at these articles can see, this is all really a bait and switch. And it's not even about ISIS. You might think, well, yeah, because we've got to stay there for ISIS. No, this is even ISIS is a bait and switch for keeping America there for Iran. That's what this whole Middle East war is about. You can read it in a clean break. A New Strategy for Securing the Realm by David Wormser, prominent neocon, later became Dick Cheney's Middle East advisor. And it was him and Richard Pearl and 
Douglas Fife, Paul Wolfowitz, and all of these guys. Wolfowitz didn't sign on to that particular letter, but this is that same group. And the idea was, we're going to weaken Iran by getting rid of Saddam Hussein, which is completely stupid. That was the whole reason they backed Saddam Hussein, was because he was sitting on a Shiite majority, and they were worried that the Iranian Revolution was going to spread into southern Iraq, where then the 60% Shiite supermajority might be in a position to overthrow Saddam and increase and spread Iranian power and influence that far into Iraq. Well, David Wormser said, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll overthrow Saddam, and then we'll bring in a cousin of the king of Jordan and a Hashemite king, and then the Shia will do whatever he says, and it'll be great. And then the Jordanians will have the power over the minority Sunni government in Baghdad, and it'll lord it over the Shia just the way Saddam did. But they'll love it. It'll be fine because I guess because he's a Hashemite, which is, you know, descended from Muhammad. That family's descended from Muhammad. So I guess supposedly then, even though they're Sunnis and not Shia, the Shia would just bend right over and they would allow that. And then America and Israel and Jordan would have dominance over Iraq and that would sever Iran from their friends in Syria and in Southern Lebanon, which is stupid because Iran has airplanes. And so, yeah, they're not severed uh, at all. There's no land bridge required. Uh, but, of course, then it didn't work out like that at all. And they were damn fools to think that that's how it was going to work out. And eventually, of course, in the plan, they had replaced the Hashemite king with Ahmed Chalabi. But then when they did the war, they didn't put Chalabi in there. He had no real backing. He had one... One small faction of power backed him in Najaf because his family had helped finance the upkeep of a shrine there for many years. So he had like a very small constituency in like one neighborhood in Najaf or something like that. But he had no ability to really be the prime minister of the country and run things. And Bush didn't trust him because he was a liar. He was the guy who promised all these weapons and all this stuff. So Bush didn't give him the job, which he wouldn't have been able to carry out anyway. And then so the whole thing got turned over to Iran's best friends in the Dawah Party and the Supreme Islamic Council. Not that they're total Iranian puppets, but they're certainly the two parties that Iran most prefers to see in power in Baghdad are exactly the ones that America put in power there. And um, anyway, I'm off on a tangent now, but did you see where George Bush denounced Donald Trump's isolationism? withdrawing from northeast Syria? This is a guy that gave the Ayatollah eastern Iraq and Osama bin Laden western Iraq. And wants to talk, and he said, "It's a da- this isolationism is a danger to peace." Are you kidding me? Like, is Donald Trump paying this guy? What is going on here? Or is not even Donald Trump, but some anti-war propagandist group figured out how to microwave messages into this guy's brain? Come out and say some more stuff denouncing peace, Bush, please. Psycho. These people have no idea. How good they make their enemies look, <laughs> you know. I don't know. To me, anyway. Um, but yeah, man. So um, the uh, I forgot exactly what I said about before the David Wormser thing, but just about you know this is the whole point. Oh, it was just about how this whole policy in the Middle East has been this whole time to try to hurt Iran. Then after they empowered Iran in Iraq, then they went and tried to get in the Obama years. They tried to get a consolation prize, essentially. By getting rid of Assad. As, again, I'll say this a million times, Obama told it to Jeffrey Goldberg in the March of 2012, almost certain March, certainly spring of 2012 in the Atlantic, that 
uh, headline of the interview is called As President, I Don't Bluff. And that's his promise to Israel and Israel's lobby in America that he will nuke Iran before he lets them get a nuke. He swears to God is what that title's about. But anyway, control F for Syria and go down a little bit. And Jeffrey Goldberg says, hey, Obama, don't you think if we could get rid of Assad that that would help weaken Iran? And Obama says, absolutely. And Goldberg says, well, so can you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing to help achieve that? Again, this is the spring of 2012, a year into America's regime change effort there. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you have going on there? And Obama says, essentially, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Right? He says, um, I'm sorry, I can't tell you, Jeffrey, because your clearance isn't quite high enough. But in other words, yes, I am confirming to you that there are covert operations underway right now in order to affect exactly that. And for exactly the reason that you just said, of course. Because the Alawites are sort of kind of a break off of the Shiites, very close to the Shiites, and are allies with Iran. And of course, that backfired as well. And Iran used to be Syria's friend. Now, Iran is Syria's patron. Right now, Syria is completely dependent on Iran to protect them from the CIA and Israel and Turkey and Saudi and uh, and Qataris, uh, mercenaries and uh, suicide bomber terrorists and so forth. Although, you know, a lot of that support has wound down by now, but I mean, they are still in the Idlib province there. And so Assad needs Iranian and Hezbollah and Russian help. And by the way, Iranian influence has decreased there quite a bit since the Russians intervened. Because who needs Iran when you have Russia kind of a deal? And, you know, Iran doesn't have that much power really to exercise there. They have, you know, um, in their Revolutionary Guard Corps, they have, you know, specialists, I guess, um, in terms of, uh, you know, tactics. But they don't have that much money or that much equipment or that much manpower to offer really you know other than you know coordination and stuff like that but anyway so this is all back for it so now they want to hide behind their crocodile tears about the kurds not even as a bait and switch because they're really concerned about isis but as a bait and switch because they're really concerned about iran and they say america has to stay at the al tomf base there in southeastern syria in order to check iran's presence there and there is a road that runs through there. There are a few different roads that run through there. But there's no, you know, Hezbollah and Syria are not dependent on any kind of trucking service from Iran to provide them with weapons and supplies and money and whatever they need. They have airplanes. And so this whole thing about a land bridge, why can't you just call it a road? Isn't it funny the new speak? You know, responsibility to protect. It's this doctrine. You have to call it R2P. R2P. That's short for we can intervene in any conflict in any sovereign nation we want to. (laughs) R2P. You know, they always have this new speak for it. Um, But anyway, so uh, that's the situation. And according to Trump, oh yeah, no, don't you worry. We're staying at the Altamf base. And by the way, I don't know if this was a leak by Trump that, you know, a trial balloon by Trump or if this was Pompeo himself pushing this, but Pompeo had said, you know, Trump sometimes makes decisions, and then he thinks about them, he takes on some new information, maybe changes his mind a little bit. So, if Trump agreed to him saying that, which I don't know, that may have been Pompeo trying to roll Trump a little bit. I think 50-50 on either explanation, but 
if that was Trump already told Pompeo, hey, go out there and tell him that. I'm going to go ahead and change my mind on this. I mean, really, it's too late anyway, right? He got Russian troops in Mambich. That should be enough to keep the Turks out of Syria and Kurdistan. You know, and they, they have ceasefires that are not being perfectly abided by right now. And I'm sorry that I'm not up to date on the very last minute details. It's Sunday afternoon when we're recording this. So I'm a couple of days behind on the latest developments there on the ground. But, you know, essentially, you can see how Obama should have never intervened there. And we have no further excuse to intervene there. They say, oh, no, but some, there's been ISIS jailbreaks. I'm sure that's true, but so all the more reason to let the Syrian Arab army reestablish its monopoly on force inside Syria and let them deal with it. That's one thing about Trump. He's a lot of times dishonest, but sometimes his tweets are all right where he goes, hey, you know what? The Kurds want to turn right around and go to our enemy, which, come on, we're, we're Syria's enemy. America's Syria's enemy. Syria never did anything to America at all. It's just not true that they're enemies of ours. It's just not. But anyway, Trump says, oh, the Kurds want to turn around and and go to our enemies, the Syrian Arab army and Assad. I wish them good luck. Go right ahead. That's 7,000 miles from here. What the hell do I care who's protecting that border? I don't. And I think he doesn't really feel that way, but he knows his audience does. He knows right-wingers are like, man, we got our own border to deal with. And instead, we've got, we're, we're between our NATO allies and some leftist rebels that we just used to fight our right-wing rebel problem that we created against this guy in the first place. Nah. And remember, back when Obama almost went to war in 2013 over the fake sarin attack in Gouda there, um... The uh, soldiers were insubordinate and all over YouTube and it was all over Breitbart. I think Bannon gets the credit for that, honestly, man. It was all over Breitbart, which means all over talk radio. And it wasn't, it's a little bit complicated, but it wasn't that complicated. They got it. This war against Assad will benefit a bunch of Al-Qaeda jihadist murderers. And there were all of these guys went on YouTube with a sign in front of their face. You could see their floppy camouflage hat and and the sign would say, hey, I didn't join the Marine Corps so I could go intervene in a civil war on the side of Al-Qaeda. And they had, and that, I mean, you can Google that in Google Images right now and you'll find 50 of them at least. And those were going around. And because that much of it was true. In fact, there's a whole species of right-wing hawk in a way, you could almost lump Tulsi Gabbard's interpretation of things in with theirs, I think. You know, the Islamist, the anti-Islamist, um, you know, lobby that, you know, spends so much time exaggerating the threat of Sharia law and all these kinds of things. Well, take, for example, Frank Gaffney. So Frank Gaffney is, you know, kind of a, you would think at least a lower level neocon I don't think he was ever at AEI or wrote for National Review. He's got this group, the Center for Security Policy, and he's known for crazy conspiracy theories saying that, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is determined to overthrow America and Grover Norquist is in on it because his wife is an Arab and, you know, just goofy stuff, you know. Um, But the thing of it was that they were anti-Islamist enough that instead of saying, hey, If Israel prefers Islamist jihadists 
to Assad, then I guess that's what we think too, which is what the entire rest of the American establishment thought. In in this case, here you have actual neoconservatives who are like, I don't care about that, dude. Uh-uh. You know, at the end of the day, Assad shaves his chin and wears a three-piece suit, and these guys are a bunch of suicide bombers. And you tell me what? You're only giving tow missiles to Arar al-Sham and not al-Qaeda? Here they are all fighting on the battlefield together. This is ridiculous. And so they put their their kind of anti-Islamic obsession came in handy in this case, essentially. It gave them the ability to see through the common narrative and say, well, sorry. You know what I mean? Like, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. If you do stand for something, you'll notice a lot of inconsistencies about what's going on around here. You know what I mean? So what these guys stand for is essentially ignorant and hateful and pro-Israel propaganda in the first place, trying to make it seem like there's this massive, you know, global civilizational threat of Islam. But in this case, they believe their own propaganda enough that it helped them to see through these lies and warn against this kind of, um, you know, operation from the very beginning. Where, of course, a lot of more mainstream neoconservatives were for it because, again, Israel hates Iran. In fact, there was a hilarious interview of um, this academic at, I think, Northeastern University, wherever that is. I'm from Texan. Uh, but his name is Max Abrams. He's quite a presence on Twitter. Uh, he's a terrorism expert. He's written some books. Um, I disagree with him about some quite a few things, actually. But he was always really good on this. And uh, he was one time, you know, interviewed on, I think it was an Israeli news channel. Uh, or it may have been just like the BBC or something. And I guess that they figured that, well, he's Jewish and he... You know, I guess had written some hawkish things about Iran or something like that. So they say to him, well, hey, you know, it's so strange that you're on this side, uh, you know, against backing the rebels in this war um, against uh, Assad when that's what, you know, has been decided is what's in the best interests of Israel. And he looks at her like she's crazy. He goes, I'm an American. (laughs) I don't care about that. The Al-Qaeda guys suicided, bombed our towers, man, and killed 3,000 people. They were the worst part of the Sunni insurgency in Iraq War II, which they never existed before Bush invaded that country. It took a year and a half before Zarqawi declared his allegiance to bin Laden, by the way. But anyway, um, uh, these guys aren't our friends, and I don't care who their enemy is. They're my enemy. So, Sorry. He's just like shrugging. He's like talking to the lady like she's from the fifth dimension. And yet she was representing the entire establishment consensus that for some reason we all prefer Al-Qaeda to Bashar al-Assad. And they mostly wouldn't talk about the reason, but sometimes they would. In fact, you can look up Jamie Rubin at foreignpolicy.com explaining how this is all about Israel. And in fact, it became a minor controversy um, and a mistaken footnote because one of the things that happened was a version, an earlier and I think more hawkish version of the article was he sent to Hillary first. And it was essentially like, hey, Hillary, I wrote this for foreign policy. I don't know if he said that specifically, but I wrote this article. I wanted to show it to you, whatever. And then what happened was when the emails came out, WikiLeaks just posted it. And immediately, I just happened to be on Twitter that morning 
I guess. And I saw the editors of Foreign Policy, uh, in fact, the publisher of Foreign Policy at that time, David Rothkop, and uh, some others. I forgot if it was Noah Shockman or who it was. But anyway, so they started attacking Assange and saying, you liar, you thief, you plagiarist, you stole this from the foreignpolicy.com website and reprinted it as an email, you fraud, you Russian agent. And he goes, no, that's not true. And they go, oh, yeah, well, how come the date's wrong? And how come it doesn't say, you know, this, that, whatever? He says, look, I don't ever doctor the things. The reason the date says the year 2000 on it is because that's how it was, that's how it came. Somebody wrote the wrong date. That's not my fault. Now you're telling me I'm supposed to get in there and manipulate the date to what I think it should have been? And the email doesn't say this is the following is by Hillary Clinton. But a lot of people took it that way. Um, but of course, the reality was it was Jamie Rubin had sent the, an earlier draft to Clinton, and that was how it got in the email. And then he published it at foreignpolicy.com. And you can go and read it, and it's all about how, you know, it would be really good for Israel if we could get rid of Assad, and then that would break the chain between Iran and Hezbollah, of course. You know, and then so, yes, just like they all wrote over and over again. If that means backing a bunch of terrorists to get it done, a bunch of bin Ladenite terrorists sworn loyal blood oath loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, then yeah, that's cool. We'll do that. That'll be fine. And people can read years of that stuff. I mean, at, at uh, Foreign Affairs, I actually have a folder of just screenshots of the covers of Foreign Affairs magazine where they literally have accepting Al-Qaeda. And there's a picture of Bin Laden and Zawahiri on there for good measure, just so you don't forget who Al-Qaeda is. Accepting Al-Qaeda because they're fighting against the Shia in Syria. You know, and then there's the good and the bad of Arar al-Sham. We got to back Arar al-Sham. And that's by Clint Watts, who says, you're a Russian, you know, um, and, and a few of these other guys. And these are this is in Foreign Affairs magazine. And this is the centrist consensus, the John McCain, Barack Obama consensus. Anyway, I'm done on Syria. What's next here? Tulsi Gabbard? Yeah. Cover Tulsi and uh, Clinton, Ben Malfoner. Well, I mean, this whole thing is just completely ridiculous, right? I mean, first of all, I guess I should say that. I love Hillary Clinton now. I used to hate her so much, and I still do. But now, she just kills me with the humor. I just, I literally am laughing my ass off watching her. And you know, Donald Trump makes me laugh too. He's the first president that ever really made me laugh. George W. Bush, I used to just seethe. He just grind my teeth. I want to throttle this guy. Um, Barack Obama. (laughs) Trump, I mean, is a horrible, hateful person, but he still is funny as hell. And Hillary Clinton now, to me, I think, is the most comic figure in America. I just love it. I mean, the tragedy is to see how many liberals are willing to buy in to what she's selling. You know, this very centrist kind of conservative Democrat national security state Scoop Jackson type, you know, personality is the personification of progressivism now and this kind of thing. So that part is really sad, but... Just watching her be crazy and falsely accuse everyone of everything and write a whole book about how it's everyone's fault but hers and just all of the things, man. I mean, go back. Don't make me start going back on all the things she did wrong in the campaign. Here's one. Go for it. She started She started towing Robert Kagan around thinking that she was going to impress a bunch of Republicans 
to switch parties and vote for her because they all love war so much. And Donald Trump sometimes says anti-war things. And so she thought that she was going to flip Texas and Arizona by coming and being a warmonger here and talking real tough. I mean, what kind of lack of self-awareness does this person have? I mean, you and I know she's a very right-wing centrist Democrat for a Democrat. But to a Republican, they think that she's a communist. You know, they've always talked about her like she's to the left of Jane Fonda and Mao Zedong and whatever. She's why they hated Bill. She is a hate figure the same way Trump is for the liberals and the left right now. She is just, and almost through no fault of her own. Don't get me wrong. She's absolutely horrible on everything. But the reasons that right-wingers hate her, who knows exactly what it is that's their problem other than just her arrogance and entitlement and just all-around hatefulness. She's such a horrible person. How could anyone not hate her? You know, I don't know. But on the right, they live to hate her. None of them voted for her. But meanwhile, what did it mean to her campaign to start towing Robert Kagan around? It meant that leftists stayed home. It meant she was saying to them, and did she even realize that she was saying to them, screw you. I either, one, don't need you, or two, don't give a damn what you think. Didn't even pretend for a minute that, no, look, you're right, we do need to start winding down these wars and stuff. Liberals and leftists and progressives who I want to vote for me. No. Instead, she's wearing Robert Kagan as a backpack. As though anybody could carry Robert Kagan around. But anyway, um, that's just one thing. She has no idea how horrible she is. She has no idea how badly she sabotaged her own campaign. The Pied Piper strategy and all of the rest of it. Donna Brazil cheating for her and all of those things. What if that story had come out? Donna Brazil tried to cheat for her and she told Donna Brazil to go to hell and then contacted CNN and had them change the debate question because she didn't want to cheat. She'd have won the election right there. That would have been her margin of victory right there. Instead it was, oh, got caught cheating. Big surprise. Cheaters never win. Everybody knows that. Cheating in a debate. What a scumbag she is. Seriously, she's got no honor. You don't have an answer for a death penalty question? You need help with that? After all this? After you're 80 years old and been through everything? Anyway, so now what does she do? She comes out and says Tulsi Gabbard is being groomed by the Russians to be a third-party candidate. Well, I hadn't actually heard the third-party candidate angle, but of course it's been in the news over and over again. That, oh my God, look, RT did a story about Tulsi Gabbard or two or three. And if RT is interested in her, that means that there is a, you know, Vladimir Putin has ordered an influence campaign to interfere in meddle in the election and the thing and the thing. Which, all of this is just bogus. Again, Clint Watts, the, the guy that wrote the article about how Iran or Al-Sham ain't so bad. He's the guy... That's the co-founder with Bill Crystal of the dashboard that where they make assertions about who on Twitter is a Russian propagandist or a Russian bot. And remember, they accused a lady who was a famous concert pianist and you know, all, all kinds of journalists and where. And then that guy, the same guy, Clint Watts himself, was finally quoted saying, oh, yeah, that whole dashboard thing. Nah, that's total garbage. It's totally unreliable. Don't believe us. We don't know what we're talking about. 
but that didn't debunk it. The guy who is behind it said that it's nonsense, but that's okay. They still quote that all the time. They use that as their source all the time. Uh, and so they go, well, we say some Twitter, uh, Russian bots on Twitter had retweeted some things about Gabbard. So, you know, one, two, skip a few, 99, she's working for them, man. Can't you tell? She's an asset. What's an asset? Well, geez, she's certainly not an FSB officer. And she's certainly not an FSB agent who, say, like, for example, made some kind of corrupt deal to take money to sell out her country to the... No, no, nothing like that. But but we have, you know, it did say in the Daily Beast that she got a retweet. So I know we'll just dumb it down one level lower and say she's an asset. They're grooming her to be an asset. Just like they, oh, to be the third party candidate. But that's assuming that Jill Stein gets out of the way. She's also an asset. Totally. Totally an asset. And yet there is of course, no evidence for that because it's a lie. You know, what Jill Stein is, is a good Green Party activist who wants to get along with Russia. She's against the new Cold War. She's against the color-coded revolutions. She's against NATO expansion. She's against American aggression. Oh, but you know who else is? Russia. <laughs> so, anyone who want you know who opposed invading Iraq? Vladimir Putin. So you see, anybody who's good on anything is actually an asset of Vladimir Putin. And it was funny because there was some pushback on some, on some, uh, by some fairly prominent people like Van Jones on CNN, who, the way he put it, he said, listen, Hillary Clinton is one of the most prominent American citizens that there is. And she's going down in the history books forever. And... For her to just throw around these kinds of absolutely, obviously baseless smears, let's not even dignify this with, if you have some evidence, let's see it. We know she has no evidence. We know she's straight just lying. And we know why, too. And Van Jones himself said, hey, listen, Tulsi Gabbard was the golden child. Remember that? They loved Tulsi Gabbard. What happened? Do you remember? She was appointed to the DNC. But then she resigned in disgust over all the corruption and the rigging of the primary against Bernie Sanders by Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Donna Brazil and the other corrupt leaders at the DNC. And so she very publicly quit the Democratic National Committee and endorsed Bernie Sanders against Hillary Clinton four years ago. That's why Hillary hates her. And that's why I think it's actually, it seemed kind of silly at first, but I think Tulsi's response and her own conspiracy theory that Hillary is behind all the baseless attacks against her, I think there's probably a lot to that. Of course, anyone, the entire media establishment who are all absolutely horrible on Syria, all want to say, oh, she loves Assad, right? They they got no argument. They have no argument. She doesn't love Assad. She met with him. She's a politician meeting with another politician. Nancy Pelosi went and met with Assad. Here's pictures of John Kerry and his wife having dinner at a fine restaurant with Assad and his. 
You know, America, George, Bill Clinton and George Bush both sent terrorist suspects there to be tortured and killed. So, oh, yeah, no, Tulsi Gabbard went and talked to the guy. So, you know, she's a toady, as um, the New York Times writer Barry Weiss called her. Oh, she's a total toady of Assad. And Joe Rogan said, what does that mean? And Barry Weiss asked her assistant there, I'm sorry, could you Google toady for me and tell me what that means? Because I don't know. I just accused this congressman of being a toady of this foreign leader and... I don't. I have no idea. I just am repeating something they told me to say. Blah blah blah. And then when she went on the View with Meghan McCain and Meghan McCain, and just think of the weakness of this. When I think Tulsi Gabbard, I think Assad apologist. And she should have just laughed in her face and said, "Well, that sounds to me like a personal problem. What the hell's the matter with you?" And, of course, she could have called her out on, hey, let's talk about that time that your dad went to support the Northern Storm Brigade and get pictured with them long after they had been accused by the American government of kidnapping and murdering some Shiite pilgrims from Lebanon. After they'd already given an interview to Time magazine bragging that they had fought against America in Iraq War II just a couple of years before. The same guys who kidnapped and then sold Stephen Sotloff to ISIS, who cut his head off. Why didn't Tulsi Gabbard say that? Let's talk about how your father's friends cut Stephen Sotloff's head off, Megan McCain. You want to try to deny that? Let's spend the rest of the segment arguing about whether that's true. Yeah, we'll all look up the Northern Storm Brigade. And we'll all see the video from time.com where they go, yeah, we killed Americans in Iraq War II. That's why we like fighting now. It's right there. But anyway, um, the deal is that here's the problem with Tulsi Gabbard from their point of view. Because she fought in Iraq War II, that means, well, she was stationed at the Balad Air Base, so... and. You know, she wasn't actually pulling triggers in combat, but she was. She's considered, they, as they call it, a combat vet because she had to drive up and down bomb-infested roadways, and she was certainly part of a medical brigade with dying and and terribly maimed Americans, and I guess others too, probably. Uh, you know, some Iraqis too, uh, being brought in and uh, for emergency surgery and this kind of thing. So she's. Utterly familiar with the trauma of Iraq War II and what it really meant. And it also means that she understands who's the difference between the shirts and the skins there. And she's saying, you want me to prefer Al-Qaeda to Iran's friends because you hate Iran for some reason you can't quite explain. Not good enough. No way. So that's why they hate her. You know, American foreign policy is our government hates Iran and their Shiite friends more, far more, than they hate Al-Qaeda, who are soaked in American civilian blood. And so, when the consensus is high treason, you know they say truth is treason? Ron Paul says truth is treason and the empire lies? Yeah, and that's basically, when the consensus is treason, then... You know, speaking the truth becomes intolerable. 
And so they have a huge problem with her and they'll say anything about her. You know, Hillary Clinton only came out for gay marriage a couple of years ago. And they go, oh, no, but look, Tulsi Gabbard said something rude about gay people in 2002. It's like, yeah, but she apologized for that in like 2006 or something, you know, or whatever it was many years ago, long before the rest of the Democratic Party leaders got good on that. So anyway, that's what's going on there. And and I'm actually glad that Hillary did it because, you know, I think it gives Tulsi Gabbard a lot more attention. Her poll numbers are up. You know, people are rallying around her. Um, it's funny because none of the Democratic, uh, none of the other Democratic politicians issued a statement about it. But when questioned, they've answered. Just look at the cowardice of every single one of these. You know, Elizabeth Warren didn't come out and go, now you hold it right there. You don't talk about my man like that here, okay? She didn't do that. None of them defended Gabbard. Until they were made to. I'm not sure if Warren was ever even made to. But I know that David, uh, not David, <laughs> that's my friend, David Beto. Um, uh, what's his name? Beto O'Rourke said something about, well, you know, I think that's a pretty serious thing that probably you should see some evidence for or something like that. But this morning, Bud a jug, I don't know how you say it, I don't watch TV, but this morning he was on TV and I read the transcript of this. Uh, where they tried to nail him down on where do you stand on this. And he had to go just dodging all over the place and refuse to even answer the question. He's so terrified to even stand up for the other candidate here. And then, you know, meanwhile, I saw on somebody's Twitter, I quit Twitter, but sometimes I troll it a little bit. And I saw on somebody's Twitter that Tulsi Gabbard is on the uh, a subcommittee in the House that's called the the Committee on evolving threats or some kind of thing like this. I forget exactly. But, and then the guy says that what that means is that far beyond any other um, Congress people and certainly far beyond anyone else on that debate stage with her, it means that she has been completely vetted by the Defense Intelligence Agency to sit on that committee. She has a special access clearance that the vast majority of the House of Representatives does not have. She's a currently serving officer in the Hawaii National Guard. (laughs) The former president's wife accuses her of treason or of what? Being such an empty suit that the Russians can just groom her and somehow control her against her will or she's she's a, a zombie who's de facto guilty of treason because of how easy to manipulate she is or something what well, it sounds like something that the DIA better investigate huh sounds like something uh like there's um an officer in rank above her some colonel or lieutenant colonel or general or somebody over there in the Hawaii National Guard they better figure out if they've got a Russian spy, a compromised Russian asset in their ranks. Of course, this is completely crazy, completely ridiculous. You know, the only thing they hate about her is she's not as bad as them. And by the way, she is bad. She says we should not go overthrowing dictators and we should certainly not go back in a bunch of Bin Ladenites against them. Okay, I'm with you so far. But then she says, wherever on earth there's Bin Ladenites, we got to fight them from now on forever. 
And she says, the reason that they fight us has nothing to do with, you know, the Bill and Hillary Clinton administration murdering Iraqis from bases in Saudi Arabia throughout the 1990s. No, no, no. Islamic extremism. America, she essentially is like a Gaffneyite half the time on this stuff. And so, no, we got to stop that Sharia law. We, or I don't know if that's one of her hobby horses, but I mean, certainly it's the Wahhabist ideology is the enemy, which is just garbage. There are millions of Wahhabists in the world. They're not at all at war with us. There, I already won the argument. That's it. Ipso facto. Horton Wright Gabbard completely full of it. I already won. What a stupid thing to say for her. To sound like George W. Bush. Oh, their extreme interpretation of Islam makes them hate innocence, huh? I hate that, man. And then, you know, she put out a video where she says, you know what? There have been Ladenite groups still in Syria. There have been Ladenite groups in Iraq. There's Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. There's Al-Shabaab in Somalia, which, wow, we're already getting, you know, defining Al-Qaeda very broadly here if we're going to include Al-Shabaab in there. Okay, fine. And then she says, there are hundreds of these groups all around the Middle East and the whatever. The No, there are not either. No, there are not either. If there's hundreds, how come she could only list four or five that we've all heard of before? She could have thrown in the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. She could have thrown in, what, Al-Qaeda in India? In the subcontinent over there? Or the the Islamic State in Afghanistan in the Khorasan province, who are just a bunch of local Pashtun fighters? And even then, we're still talking less than 10. What hundreds? That's a damn lie. And it also completely obliterates what should be her support for being an anti-war veteran. She's in the perfect position to say, bring them home. We just marched in. We can just come home just like Ron Paul. And instead, she doesn't get my support and she doesn't get, well, she's a, horrible on every other thing, but war's the only thing I care about. But I won't support her because she's still horrible. I mean, if you say we have to, America has to go to war against Al-Qaeda in the Idlib province now, not just we have to stop backing them, but now we got to kill them all. And we got to fight Iraq War three and a half in Western Iraq, embedded with the Shia, fighting who they say are leftovers of ISIS from now until when? Oh, what? The last one of them is defeated? It's crazy and stupid and wrong. And it makes her essentially no better than the rest of them. Hate to say it, because she is the best when it comes to articulating why we should not be overthrowing governments over there. But you know what? I don't anticipate that Buttigieg is going to finish the job against Assad. Or is going to go to Oman next or whatever. Right? So, the era of that for now is over. uh, Regardless of who the next president is. And the worst threat there would be Iran, and it's Trump who's more likely to go to Iran than any Democrat, probably. But even then, I don't think he would either. I don't think he'd do that either. But anyway, so, um, let's see. I think that's all I got to say about that. Um, 
I, I really wish I could say nicer things about Gabbard. I, you know, I wrote an article for antiwar.com a few weeks back about how if she would just get a few things right or she would really be great. And then, you know, one of the smears against her, though, is, oh, no, look, right wingers like her. But if you look at who they're quoting, the right wingers that they're quoting are all anti-war guys. Even some of them are like, you know, David Duke. Oh, thanks a lot for your support, jerk. How about kill yourself and then endorse me after that? Um, but still, why does he like her? What, because she's a national socialist like him? No. It's just because she said some anti-war stuff. And he somewhat rightly equates all of America's Middle East wars with Zionism, which he hates because he's an anti-Semitic Nazi piece of garbage. Not because of anything unfair that they did to the Palestinians. So, how does that reflect on her at all? It doesn't, at all. It doesn't mean anything. I saw on Twitter, someone quoted David Icke, who says that, or Ikey, that says that the whole world's controlled by aliens from the fifth dimension. Shape-shifting lizards. Through the Rothschilds and the Skull and Bones and the Federal Reserve or something. Uh-huh. And he says, oh, wow, she said an anti-war thing. I really liked that on Twitter. And they go, oh, see, she's the favorite of the guy that says that they're all lizards. And I guess that's convincing to some people. You know, that look, some right-wingers like Gabbard. Well, what do they like about her? Is she good on guns? No. Is she good on markets? No. Welfare? No. Regulation? No. War? A little bit. That's all it is. No, there's nothing else about her for a right winger to like. And they're, you know, it's supposed to be, I guess, you know, confusing or whatever that a right winger would be anti-war at all. But some right wingers prioritize it. And not all a bunch of David Dukes either. You know? And I'm a libertarian. I'm not a right winger. I've never been a kind of right winger. And I don't think libertarians are a kind of right winger. Although people consider us in that light a lot of times. Which makes some sense if you, you know, depending on who we're allied with on what subject at any given time. Um, but of course, um, I think I speak for every single libertarian. She's bad on everything. Except she's a little bit less worse than the rest on this. I mean, do you know of any libertarian who would agree with any of her other domestic policies whatsoever? Of course not. They go, oh, yeah, the libertarian likes her. Well, because she wants to murder people in fewer numbers. <laughs> yeah. How conservative, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it is. All right, we're already at an hour. I went on way too long about both of those things. Were there more things I was supposed to answer about? Yeah, I mean, I'll go real fast. Go ahead. We 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 cover a lot during that. Uh, specifically, Saudi Arabia, their ex- expensive military is—is is it really as lousy as recent events like to indicate? Oh, yeah, so, I mean, if you remember when the Houthis invaded um, southwestern yeah. Saudi and captured that force, it's a bunch of mercenaries. It's a bunch of locals, and my guy uh, Nasser Arabi, my reporter there in mine, his his own self. He belongs. Uh, uh, my friend, the reporter there in Sana, he said he has a nephew that went and fought in the Saudi army just for the money. Now, what are you going to do? And so you have, you know, they call it the Saudi army. It's a group of militia guys, essentially, and and mercenaries. And they did have a few officers, you know, Saudi officers running the thing. It's not like they were lying about who it was that they had captured. It's just that 
Saudi Arabia doesn't really have a field army because they're afraid to have a field army because it would overthrow them, the princelings. And so instead, you know, they have warehouses full of American junk and they hire mercs to do any fighting on the ground. That's why when the redirection means tilting back towards Saudi, it means tilting back towards Al-Qaeda. They don't have an army. They don't have a navy or they have a very small navy. They don't have an ability to project any power other than American power. Otherwise, the best that they can do is suicide bombers. Like you saw in Iraq War II, where Saudi Arabia fought against America there, backing the worst part of the Sunni insurgency there, as you saw in Libya and in Syria and in uh, Yemen. And actually, it's interesting in Yemen, isn't it? How in Yemen, the Saudis prefer the Muslim Brotherhood, who usually they hate. In this case, they prefer the Muslim Brotherhood, the Al-Islah party, because it backs Hadi, the guy that they're trying to reinstall in power, that they cannot reinstall in power in the capital city there. Whereas their allies, the UAE, tend to favor Al-Qaeda more in this case. I'm not sure what beef the Saudis ever had with Syria and Al-Qaeda, other than maybe because some of them had been in Saudi and had attack targets in Saudi and been chased to Yemen from there, maybe that they're really worried about these guys because ultimately bin Laden's real goal always was to overthrow the monarchy and replace it. And, you know, so um, that may be their worry. They might like using Al-Qaeda in Syria. They just don't want them anywhere around Riyadh, you know? But, um, so yeah, no, their army is nothing. Their army is a joke. Their army is a bunch of Americans. And it's funny. And by the way, I appreciate this uh, in a in a sick kind of a way, you know, like in a or a kind of a dark humor kind of a way that Americans. Well, okay, the ruling caste of Americans, the whites don't like being told that they are the manservants of a bunch of dirty Arabs. And yet, yeah, that's kind of the deal. They look at us as their servants, their royalty. We're scum. We're a bunch of Appalachian white trash, all of us. Just ask Dick Cheney. And, and yeah, hey, ask, um, ask Robert Gates, who came back and said the Saudis instructed him about the war America had to fight against Iran. And I'm sure he didn't say this to their face, but he came back saying, what the hell are we, a bunch of mercenaries or something? Yes, that's exactly what you are. You know, you know, Washington, D.C. is not a capital city. As uh, William S. Lynn, the military strategist, put it years ago, it's just an imperial court. And so, yeah, the Saudis, just like the Israelis and the English and whoever else, do everything they can to influence D.C. to serve their interests. And since they get to socialize all their costs onto all the rest of us, they are absolutely mercenaries at the beck and call of a bunch of people who... They're surprised to find out don't respect them and think of them as nothing but scum. Yes, Robert Gates, you are no better at all than Eric Prince. You're just a fool whose job it is to fool parents into giving up their sons to die fighting other countries' wars for them. And... Hey, the American arms industry. <laughs> I don't want to leave them the, out. Go ahead. Moving more troops down to Saudi Arabia, helping them out against Iran. 
is, is that what it's looking like or is this a campaign strategy or is this like uh, fearing the next economic collapse kind of deal? No, man. So you remember on the war. Simpsons movie where they give President Schwarzenegger four choices or three choices and he's supposed to choose the one in the middle? And he's like, higher, lower, to the left, to the right. No, this one. Yeah, that one. Hot, cold. No, that one right there. Yeah, uh-huh. And they and so they're narrowing his choices. I think that in this case, the sending of troops to Saudi probably represented the least option on the table. Because the idea was, after that attack on the um, refinery, that we got to do something. And Trump didn't want to do something. And I think the chiefs didn't want to do something either. I'm kind of just making this up. I'm I'm going off as of speculation from just, you know, tidbits of what I've understood about, you know, from different stories about different uh, yeah, well, different I mean, angles it, on their positions. And I think they came to Trump and said, here's how we can do something without really doing something. We'll send more troops to Saudi. We can pull them back out at some point. But it means we don't have to bomb anybody. We're just going to do this instead of bombing anybody. And I think that that's the way it played out. So it, it's it still is, terrible. But, don't get me wrong, but it's just a lot less worse than bombing Tehran or or sinking a few of their ships or some of the other things that are being proposed. Doesn't that just make them that much closer to Iran, though? Like, I, how is it the worst option? They oh, might not yeah. be doing it, anything. It makes yet, them closer, in, literally speaking, in terms of in danger to Iranian retaliation. Yes, although of course that's somewhat of a deterrent too. That like, hey, Iran, you don't want to. Have American GIs be collateral damage in some, you know, pinprick thing you want to do to the Saudis, do you? Because the Americans could get really ornery about such things. And the Americans got B-52s. And let me say on Iran here that I think that this thing's winding down. We are already past the peak of tension there. And I don't know how Trump's going to climb down from it. But he already balked on the attack. And... Unless something has changed, and I have no indication that anything has changed, the Army and the Marine Corps have no interest whatsoever in war with Iran. And, you know, in fact, even back in like 2007, I think the Air Force was saying, yeah, we can do it, but even then I think the Navy was reluctant. And that would have just been air power. And they probably could keep their Navy far enough away from Iran's coast to be safe. But I think they were really worried about losses and the the army and the marines and and the special operations command i mean you're talking about losing a hell of a lot of guys and we've got an infantry station all over the middle east air force bases in uh cutter and in um uae a giant navy base in bahrain huge amounts of infantry in kuwait uh, 15,000 in afghanistan another at least five or ten thousand probably in iraq all within range of Iran for retaliation. And the special operations guys for the anti-aircraft, they have to go in and put lasers on targets in order to, and again, unless something's really changed in the technology where they really just don't need those laser designators anymore, I think they do. I think they've got to have special operations guys on the ground putting lasers on targets for the Air Force to be able to, you know, successfully take out Iranian anti-aircraft. But we're talking about a country bigger than Texas. We're talking about a huge... We're talking about Persia. We're going to take out enough of their anti-aircraft. We're going to assume that 
it's not mobile enough or hideable enough. We're going to think we got them all, and then we're going to send in, you know, lower flying planes for more precision strikes on other targets and whatever. And I don't think so, man. I just, I think that they look at that and they go, well, I mean, hey, if we had to, sure. If, you know, Israel nukes DC and blames it on Iran, then yeah, I guess we could. But, you know, they don't want to. It would be a hell of a war. It would be a huge war to to fight it to the end because who even says they could get the Ayatollah, right? As soon as they invaded Iraq, Saddam disappeared. He was gone for a year and a half. They start a war against Iran. They have no way to finish it without a major commitment. And they know that. And they know also that Iran is weak, but they're also, you know, clever and mean. And so they can hit back in asymmetric ways against American and allied targets all over the world. And that's exactly what they would do, right? They would, the war would not end because America said the bombing campaign halted this week. The retaliation would come later and in creative and horrible ways. And um, that's the good news. Okay, I mean, that means that, forget it. It's not, again, all this Middle East policy this whole time, in through Bush and Obama is to try to hurt Iran because they can't invade Iran. They can't attack Iran or even, you know, carpet bomb Iran or really do anything without things getting out of control. So instead they keep trying to hurt them by taking their friends away and, you know, doing these goofy things to um, try to preempt gains in power they might have, all of which have backfired. You know, obviously, again, especially in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. So, well, I explained about Iraq and Syria. In Yemen, they've barely done anything to support the uh, Houthis. But the Americans give them credit, what the Americans call blame, but from their point of view and in the world, obviously is credit for every one of the Houthis' victories. And so, essentially, you know, it's buy one, get ten free in terms of the... uh, well, I don't want to say the word credit again. I don't know. The the uh, responsibility that they get to take for Saudi Arabia's failure there. Does that make sense? So, um, uh, the whole thing has backfired. Every bit of it. Blowback, baby. Yeah. I like backdraft. See, I coined that in Fool's Aaron. Stole that from the firefighters there. Backdraft is when, well, first, blowback is long-term consequences of covert action, secret foreign policies, so that when it comes back, the American people don't know what's going on and are susceptible to false explanations, you know. Backdraft is when blatant, obvious, open foreign policies blow up right in your face. And, uh, which is what happens when the real term, there's a movie called this, right, about firefighters, And the real term is from, you can have a room where it's so hot and full of combustible material, but no oxygen. It's all been sucked out under the door or whatever, for whatever reason, the room didn't ignite. And then the firefighters, looking for little Susie or whatever, kicks in the door, provides oxygen to the heated room, and bam, it blows up. You know, so you could even call it, you know, a well-intended intervention, at least on some people's parts, but... The it's violent intervention, wielding an axe or a giant jack boot, a kick in that door, and the thing blows up right in your face. And we got plenty of that. That's the 
Maybe that should be the... Nah, because see, it's too derivative because there's even like Backdraft 2, the movie about more firefighters or whatever. So it's, can't use that for the title. But anyway, it's it's a good enough... Uh, I think you can still use it for the phenomenon, if not the title of a book. All right. Um, I know I said way too much. I hope I said the best things that I meant to say and all that somewhere. You did, and that's all that matters. Yeah, man. Okay. Well, um, oh, and by the way, I guess we should have said at the beginning, the questions, some of them anyway, in there, if you <laughs> want to ask questions, we get them from the Reddit room. And uh, you got to be a supporter, five bucks a month or more at uh, Patreon or PayPal to the Scott Horton Show, and uh, you get access to the Reddit room. There's a couple hundred of us in there, and we have a pretty good time. Buy the new books at the Libertarian Institute. Yeah, the books. I wrote a book called Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. Some people liked it. I uh, also wrote a book called, well, I edited a book called The Great Ron Paul, The Scott Horton Show Interviews, 2004 through 2019, which is great. And then we just put out, um, this summer, um, along with the Ron Paul book, we put out No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, our late great co-founder there, uh, which is just absolutely wonderful and devastating, and I know that you'll love it. And then brand new out, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine, a collection of essays all about Israel and Palestine and what is the real deal with that conflict there. What is the libertarian take on what's happening there? And uh, I think you will find it quite satisfactory. And you can find out all about all of those books at libertarianinstitute.org. All right. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Scott.